We are in Mark, ch- finishing chapter 3 today. Mark 3, 20 to 35. I'd like you to find that with me, please, and then stand and we will pray uh, after we read the passage. Anything I say that's wrong today, I'm just going to blame on allergies because you, like me, are, are maybe struggling a little bit on, on a different medicine to see if that'll help, so hopefully it will. So now that you've stood, I'm going to read the passage. And then after I read the passage, I'm going to pray. That's the plan. Verse 20. And the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are so grateful to be able to spend time together as your people around your word, hearing what you have to say to us. And that's what we're asking for today, that we would hear loud and clear what you want us to understand about you, about ourselves from this passage. So please, Lord, give us understanding. We know that you've given your Holy Spirit to live inside us, to lead us into all truth. We know that he is here to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, and we pray that he would accomplish his work in us and through us, and that you would change us to be more like Jesus as a result of being here together and studying this passage today. I ask for your help to teach that what I say would make sense to those who hear it, that we would be able to make this somewhat complicated passage as simple as it can be. And Lord, that ultimately you would be our teacher, that these would be your words today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. In case you didn't catch it, this is that passage, the one about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we will get to that and talk about that this morning. But this section has a sandwich structure. Yes, a sandwich structure. Um, If you've studied literature or speeches, you you sometimes hear them called bookends. 
That's the idea, that Mark starts off talking about Jesus' family, and then he talks about the religious leaders, and then he talks more about Jesus' family. And that's why this goes together. You may have thought, oh, wow, are we going to get through 16 verses today? Yes, Lord willing, we are. And they go together in that way. In this passage, we're going to see two different types of opposition to Jesus' ministry. We have those who are against him, who are genuinely opposed to him, those who have malicious intent toward him. That's the religious leaders. But then we also see the, the well-intended family members who think he needs some help, he needs some rest, and so on. But they, neither group understood him. Both groups should have recognized him. This is the Messiah. This is God come in human flesh. And neither of them recognized him for who he was. They were confused by him and by his ministry and the shape that it was taking. Again, the theme, as I see it, for the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is the suffering servant and he calls people to be his disciples. So the call and cost of being his disciple. And last week was more about the call. Those of you who were here or who listened to it afterward, we were talking about the call of the 12 disciples. And Luke adds, whom he called apostles. We talked about them and the different personalities and there's basically a band of misfits and God chose them, and Jesus chose them deliberately for them to be with him, and then so that later he could send them out, and they would preach in his name, and in addition to that, they would work miracles by casting out demons and by healing people. That was more about the call to being a disciple. This week is more about the cost of being a disciple, not because there's a cost really in this passage for his disciples, but we're going to be like our master, right? We're not greater than our master, and if he is persecuted, we read elsewhere in the Gospels, his followers should expect to be persecuted. So I have main, three main ideas for us this morning. Main points. These are very simple, I believe. First, people will disappoint. People will disappoint you. People will disappoint us. And we see that in terms really more of his family. And we'll talk about that. Number two, Satan will attack you. He will attack us. He is out to get us. And we'll see how that takes shape. He is working in and through the religious leaders in this passage. And then, that idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about the one and only sin that will send a person to hell and try to explain as clearly as possible what Jesus meant in verse 29 and the surrounding verses. So that's the plan for this morning. Starting off with, number one, people will disappoint us. Look back. I'm actually going to start at the end of verse 19. I told you last week that the end of verse 19 probably really belongs with this next paragraph, so that's where I'm going to start. There it says, and they went into a house. Who did? Well, the they is Jesus and the 12 disciples he has just called. And when it says they went into a house, some of the manuscripts say the house, it's probably talking about he returned home. He went back to the place he was staying in Capernaum. And as we've said before, that may have been Peter's house. But he came back to home base. Verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. The multitude came together again. Remember last week we saw the two different multitudes. We had the multitude from Galilee. And then the multitude that came from elsewhere. And they were coming. Why were they coming? To see the miracles. They wanted to see somebody get healed. They wanted to see a demon be cast out. So they were gathering. Many people. Perhaps tens of thousands of people were coming. Well, he gets back to home base, to the house, and as we saw before, when he, he healed the crippled man who was let down through the roof, 
a crowd gathered. As soon as they knew, hey, he's here. And everybody comes. And they don't wait for an invitation. They just come. And they infiltrate the house. They're just all there, all the time. Because what does it say? They, again, the they, that's Jesus and his disciples, couldn't even eat bread. Um, to illustrate that, maybe the, the most common thing would be for if, if you are with a loved one in the hospital caring for somebody or you've had a death in the family, sometimes you need to be reminded to eat because you don't even think to eat or there's just so much going on you haven't had time to eat. I can remember one of our children being born. Rochelle was in labor for more hours than we would have liked and finally she said, you need to go eat something. Well, here, they didn't have time to eat. They were so busy, they didn't have time to eat. Now, there were other times Jesus intentionally fasted. We understand that. But this doesn't seem to be something where he was fasting for some event coming up or giving himself to prayer. It just seems like it was too busy. And he, he told his disciples in John chapter 4, had food to eat that his disciples didn't know about. What was that? To do the will of his father. So there's a sense in which he was being buoyed, he was being sustained by doing his father's will. That's good. But at some point, your body needs food. And certainly the disciples were aware of, I was thinking about that this week, that if I'd been one of the disciples, I'd probably been more excited about when he turned water into wine and we got to feast at that wedding for a week, or when he fed the 5,000 or he fed the 4,000. Those would have been good ones. Not, here he is teaching in the house and we don't even have time to eat. Lord, would you please send them away so that we can get a meal? And there was, that's how busy it was. And word of that seems to have gotten back to his family, his loved ones. Look at verse 21. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. This, of course, is one of my life verses. He is out of his mind. Can you believe that they would say that about Jesus? Well, that's what they thought. When it says his own people, often that means your, your close inner circle of friends, but it can also mean family members, and that's what it seems to mean here, that it was his family. So they believed there was something really wrong here. They thought he's not getting to eat. He is offending all the religious leaders. Just, just think how they would have seen this because they didn't believe in him yet. We'll talk about that. So they went out is what it says. Where did they go out from? Well, where did his family live? His immediate family lived in Nazareth. So here's a map for you of Nazareth. It was, uh, I believe, 30 miles or so. So a little bit of a distance. Here's Nazareth. That's where his family was. And then his adopted hometown now, his home base in Capernaum there by the lake. So they traveled 30 miles. What does that tell me? That tells me it was important to them. He was important to them. They cared about him. That They thought they were doing the right thing, coming. And what were they going to do when they got there? Lay hold of him. Elsewhere, that's translated arrest. That's how Mark uses that Greek word later. So they're coming to arrest him. They're, they're coming with the straitjackets. That's the idea. They think he's lost it. At the very least, they think he needs some rest. He needs some time away from the crowds. He needs to eat some home-cooked meals. Maybe that's what Mary was thinking, that she was going to take care of him. So, so they're leaving Nazareth, and they're on their way because they're concerned about their brother, their son, their family member. And they're concerned that he's out of his mind. 
No one in his family at this point seemed to understand or believe that he was the Messiah. And if they believed that, they didn't understand what it was going to look like. They were confused. Someone said, it's one thing to be misunderstood, let down, or betrayed by friends. But it's hard to put into words what that feels like when it's your own family. And so that would have been difficult. Remember, he's fully God, he's fully man. And it's not recorded here what, what he felt. But when your family rejects you, when your family doesn't understand you, when your family thinks you're crazy, some of you have gone through that. Maybe you became the first Christian in your family. You were the first believer. And maybe that happened as an adult, and, and your family thought you were nuts. Maybe they still think that. You can understand what this was like at this point. So his own people misunderstood him. But now we come to a second group, the scribes. And they came from Jerusalem, and they are intentionally attacking him. So that brings us to our second point. We said that people will disappoint us. Second, Satan will attack us. Now, it seems, I think, like a little bit of a jump here. We're talking about his, his family's coming, his family thinks he's crazy, and all of a sudden, the religious leaders thinks he has, think he has a demon? How did we get there? Anybody else feel that way? That's where it is a great blessing that the Lord has given us multiple accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, because Matthew fills in some of those details. What had happened, and if you want to look it up on your own, it's Matthew 12, 22 to 24, that's the parallel. And what has happened is that Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was both deaf and blind. And, and many people think he was mute as well. Well, why does that matter? Well, to them at that time, when they tried to cast out demons, it was very important to them. They had to get to find out the name of the demon so they could order him around. Order, order it around, I'll, I'll say him. So how are you going to do that with a deaf person? If he was mute as well, how are you going to get that person to speak the name of the demon so that you find out the name of the demon so that you can cast it out? That's what they believed they had to do. So when Jesus, who was the Messiah, does a Messiah-like thing and says, all right, no problem. I'm going to take care of the demon. I'm going to take care of the deafness. I'm going to take care of the blindness. Let's just do it all. I can get this. And he does. And what the religious leaders are dealing with at that point is a crowd that's saying, could this be the Messiah? Could he be the one? We've never seen anything like this. Could this be the one God promised he would send? And now the religious leaders have a choice. They're forced into a choice. Are they going to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah? No, that will never work. That would involve giving up their power and admitting that some of their traditions are wrong. Not going to do that. I know. Let's accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Let's do that. That's where this comes from. So that's kind of filling in the gap a little bit. We're in verse 22 now, back in Mark chapter 3. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Who are the scribes? We've talked about them a little bit before. They were the scholars. They were sometimes called lawyers. Many of them were Pharisees, and they were considered to be experts in the law and its application. What does that mean to us? It means that they were the experts in tradition, how they applied the law of Moses, and so on. And when it says, they said, that's what my New King James has, it really means they were constantly saying. It's imperfect. It doesn't have an ending. So they were saying as often as they could, and you'll see that other places in the Gospels if you chase them down. 
There are other places where they were accusing Jesus of having a demon. So when they say he has Beelzebub, they mean he has been possessed by Beelzebub. So who's that? That's not probably a name that you have heard often, but your translation may have Beelzebul, Beelzebub. Not so concerned about that. Don't be hung up. Oh, well, mine says this. Beelzebub, as far as I can tell, comes from a Hebrew word. It means Lord of the Flies. It was the, the deity of Ekron. Think back to the time of the Philistines. And then Beelzebul seems to be an Aramaic word. And either way, the Biel, as we have it in English, probably wasn't right. It was probably Baal. Because Baal meant God. The same way Allah means God. So it would be God for us, little g, God of the Philistines, God of the flies. It was probably less flattering than that. It was probably God of the dung. So imagine Beelzebub, Beelzebul, whatever. Another meaning of it was Lord of the house. And that's probably the reason we have it as Beelzebul, that version, the Aramaic word, because of what's coming. We're going to talk about the strong man of the house being bound in a few verses. But either way, this character, B, is the prince of demons. And Ephesians 2, 2 says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So these religious leaders are not about to admit he could be doing this out of the power of God. So they're going to go in the absolute opposite direction and say, no, he's doing it through the power of Satan, the prince of demons. In fact, he's possessed by Satan. Now, if you can even imagine, how would you have responded to those kind of accusations? I think we would have argued and said, no, I'm not. And, and here, here's the proof. He didn't even acknowledge them, really. In, in typical fashion, he asked them a question. We'll see that in a minute. He didn't allow his emotions to get involved. John Phillips said he didn't respond with anger, sarcasm, or scorn. He just appealed to their common sense. The question he asked them, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's what he's going to ask them. But before that, look at verse 23. He called them to himself and said that in, in parables, there's our question, how can Satan cast out Satan? What I'm about to tell you is not inspired. This is more like Bob's imagination. But when it says he called them to himself, what's he, what he's saying is, come on over here, guys. I want to talk to you. And it doesn't say they kept their distance. I, I'm careful here because I don't want to argue from silence. But in my mind, they came over and that proved the point. They didn't think he was Satan or indwelt by Satan. They weren't afraid of him. Or worse yet, they weren't afraid of Satan. But he says, come on, let's have a little huddle. Let's talk. And he's going to tell them the error of their ways, that they are totally illogical in what they're going to say. And how does he do it? He does it in parables. And when we get to the next chapter, there weren't chapters back then, but when we get to chapter four, that's the first extended parable we're going to have in the book of Mark. And more and more, he's going to teach in parables. But right now, when it says parables, I was taught when I was little, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There's nothing wrong with that definition. That's a good definition. But here, by parables, it's more like, here's a little proverb for you. Here's a little illustration to help you understand what I'm saying. Because they're not full-blown stories at this point. So this is an analogy, a metaphor that he's going to give them. 
And I see this as two different parables. One in verses 24 to 26 about division, and then another one in verse 27 about the strong man. So let's look at 24 to 26. If a kingdom is divided against itself, pay attention to that phrase. It's going to be repeated three times, the word divided. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. You seeing a pattern here? And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it has an end. So what I see is that Jesus is saying the same thing three different ways. Because we have this repeated phrase, divided against himself or itself and cannot stand. So we have kingdom, house, and Satan. What's he saying? He's saying that no organization can succeed while it's experiencing internal division. When it's being ripped apart by civil war, the kingdom's not going to last. When a family is not united, it's not going to last. When a business, take your pick, it doesn't matter, a, a sports team. When there's division, when there's strife, when you can't get along, when there's a superstar, when there's somebody who isn't going to talk to the other guy, it's not going to work. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do you realize what you're saying here is that Satan is divided? If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then how's that helping Satan? That's my paraphrase. That's not exactly what he said. So whatever the context in your family, in your business, in the church, strife and division are going to tear apart. They're not going to allow to succeed. Someone said, Jesus was explaining, I'm not under Satan's power. Instead, I'm proving that I am stronger than Satan. As I was reading this this week, I, I was thinking there's a sense in which he's saying, I'm stronger than Satan. In the same way that later he told religious leaders, there's a greater than Solomon here. There's a greater than Jonah here. He's saying, there is a greater than Satan here. We understand that Satan is a powerful being. He's a fallen angel. He is the prince of the fallen angels. But to Jesus, he's just a created being. He, the God-man, the Messiah, is greater than Satan. Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, I'm not saying we should go out and plunder somebody's house, but this is his illustration. Back then, they didn't have alarm systems or cameras. Might have had a dog or something. But the idea is you can't break into somebody's house unless you're going to deal with the person whose house it is. That's what Jesus is saying. And you have to be stronger than the person who is in the house. In this case, the strong man. Stronger than the strong man, if you will. I really like what David Guzik put in his commentary here. When he says plunder his goods, Jesus is saying that the goods are people. So Jesus is saying, I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time. I am taking back what is rightfully mine from the one who rules this world, who has been given the authority for now to rule this world. I'm taking them back, and I'm taking them back one at a time. I'm calling them by name. I'm, I am bringing them to myself, inviting them to experience my salvation. I also want to look at one more phrase there, that Satan has an end. Because he didn't say that about the house. He didn't say that about the kingdom. He said that about Satan. 
Well, Satan does have an end. Aren't you glad? This expression appears only in Mark's gospel. It doesn't appear in the parallels. And it's talking about Satan has an ultimate doom. We read about that in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, where it says that he'll be thrown where? Into the lake of fire. How long? Forever. His end is coming. Luther wrote, Lo, his end is sure. In a mighty fortress of God. Talking about Satan. It's coming to an end. Well, how and when did that end begin? Well, when he bound the strong man. What does that mean? Jesus has been expelling demons. We've, we've seen it, I don't know how many times, three, four, five references already in the book of Mark in these first couple chapters. It began, as we pointed out, with his victory over Satan at his temptation. That Satan is not going to have any part of me. No, I am stronger. I will defeat you. Because what was prophesied a little back in Genesis? That Satan, the tempter, the serpent, would bruise Jesus' heel, but he's going to get stomped on. His head's going to be crushed. That's the ultimate. And Jesus is stronger than Satan. Satan is attacking. He is using these religious leaders to cause problems and ultimately will cause Jesus' death. But Jesus is telling him, guys, your argument makes no sense. Because Satan would not advance, he wouldn't be able to advance his kingdom by casting out himself, casting out other demons. But Jesus wasn't finished. So this brings us to our third point for this morning. Only one sin sends anyone to hell. Verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. First phrase to notice, assuredly, I say to you, if you have a King James, it probably says, verily, I say to you. This is a phrase that Jesus used frequently. It occurs, I think, 13 times total in the Gospels. And it's the same word as amen. We talked about it when we were in Revelation because it appears there. So 13 times in Mark, actually, many times in the Gospels, always said by Jesus. And what is he saying when he says, assuredly, I say to you, or I tell you the truth? He's saying, this is it. Pay attention. Get this. I'm about to tell you something that is totally true, something you can bank on, something that you should know, something that you should remember. So he's saying, I tell you the truth. I'm saying to you something important. What is he saying that's important? Before we talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to talk about that topic. But what does your passage say? If you underline or mark your Bible, I would encourage you to pay attention to that next phrase. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men all sins will be forgiven the sons and daughters of men all sins plural can be forgiven if you are here this morning and you have struggled with whatever sin and it's maybe it's been something that's you've struggled with for years your sin can be forgiven if you think i've said i've done i've hurt i've doesn't matter all sins can be forgiven well how does that happen i come and ask 
for forgiveness and cleansing from Jesus, the only one who can forgive sins. I have to come to him. Our sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath, the penalty, the death that was deserved by my sin, by your sin, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. So all sins will be forgiven. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what shame you think you're experiencing right now. Whatever shame and guilt, confess it. It can be forgiven. That is good news. All sins can be forgiven. You all are looking kind of sleepy. Would you say that with me? All sins can be forgiven. All sins will be forgiven. Yes, will is better than what I just said can. So let's talk about the other part. What about the one that isn't going to be forgiven? Blasphemy. We need to know what that word means if we're going to understand this. Blasphemy means to speak against. It means to slander. Blasphemy against the Spirit. That's capital S Spirit. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Speaking against the Holy Spirit. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, literally. Now, in this specific instance... This was saying, Jesus, you are casting out demons in the power of the Holy Spirit. When did he get the power of the Holy Spirit? At his baptism. You remember, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove on him, empowered him for ministry. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So anything he is doing for his entire ministry is in the power of who? The Holy Spirit. He's doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. They look at that and say, nope, that is not the Holy Spirit. It is Satan. He is indwelt by Satan. Now, let me give you a clue here. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and be indwelt by Satan at the same time. It just does not work. It cannot happen. And we already talked about the logic of that. Jesus corrected their thinking. But here he is doing great works, miracles, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're saying, nope, it's not the Holy Spirit. They're taking acts that are in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're saying, nope, they are in the power of Satan. They're saying he is, in, he is Satan. They're calling the Holy Spirit Satan. That's basically what's happening here. Can we do that today? Well, yeah, I suppose you could say that about the Holy Spirit, but that's not what this is talking about. In a very specific way, we cannot commit this same sin today. Let me explain. Jesus was on earth for some 33 years, give or take, and he had about a three-year ministry, during which time, beginning of his baptism, he was filled by the Holy Spirit doing all these acts. He is not here physically for us to see him, to touch him, to watch him perform a miracle. So we cannot say, oh, that miracle he just did in front of me was really in the power of Satan. We can't commit that sin that way, not the way these religious leaders did. And yet... Taking the words of Jesus here, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. So what is Jesus warning about? Well, let me try a couple of illustrations. Do you remember the time of the Exodus and Pharaoh? And if you start reading how he responded to each new plague, there are times where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and he wouldn't let God's people go. And you get to the Eighth Commandment and you read something different. You read God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So there comes a point at which you resist the Holy Spirit and you resist the Holy Spirit and you refuse to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in your heart, convicting you of sin. And God says, enough. You can have your own way. I think that is similar to this. New Testament. We just met Judas Iscariot last week for the first time in Mark's gospel. And what did it say about him? He's at the end of the list and it says what? Who also betrayed him. If you read, I think it's John's gospel, it could be Luke, one of the others says that Satan entered into Judas. Judas refused the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. So, this statement, all sins will be forgiven versus this one that never has forgiveness. How do we reconcile that? How is that possible if, if God, if Jesus says all sins will be forgiven but one never has forgiveness, this idea of never has forgiveness, that's where we get the, the term the unpardonable sin. And this is the best I can explain it. I tried to figure out, can I show this visually? So if you consider blasphemy of the Holy Spirit a subset of the unpardonable sin, I'm not sure if that's really the right way to do it, but that's what makes sense to me. This way they blasphemed the Holy Spirit is a very specific way while Jesus was on earth. People can still commit the unpardonable sin today. Why? What is it? It's refusing to accept Christ as Savior. So that's why it's singular. This one sin that cannot be forgiven, there is only one sin that will ever send anyone to hell. And that is rejection of the way of forgiveness. Rejection of the one who came as the way, the truth, and the life to give us salvation. Rejection of Jesus Christ, refusal to believe in him, is the only thing that will send anyone ever to hell. That is the unpardonable sin. That is what we're talking about. If you die without Christ, if you refuse it, if the Holy Spirit is convicting, because that's one of his jobs. John 16, as you start studying John 15, 16, 17, you're going to find statements about the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside. His job description. And here's one of them. John 16, Verse 8 says, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It doesn't say he will convict the world of sins, plural. Because however many sins, plural, we have committed or will commit, once we come to Jesus, those are all under the blood. Those are all forgiven. All of them are forgiven. That's what we just read, isn't it? But there is one sin, and that is to reject the free salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ alone. If I reject that, I refuse. I don't need that. I don't want that. I will take care of my own sins. Thank you very much. That's the person who will never be forgiven. That is the person who will face eternal punishment, damnation. And we think, boy, that's deep. And we're going to let that sit, settle and, and, and sit there for a minute. But Mark never stops his narration, does he? He just goes on to the next thing. And the next thing is that Jesus' family arrives. So this is the next part of the story. This is the second part of the sandwich. This is the other piece of bread, right? The arrival of Jesus' mother, the arrival of his brothers, comes back to what we started and left off in in verse 21. And if you will, this returns us to point one, that people will disappoint. 
Verse 31, then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So we need to take care of a couple things right here. It says his brothers. Right here it just says plural brothers. If we go over to Mark 6, 3, a little bit later in the book of Mark, we'll get there someday soon. Mark 6, 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Jesus had at least four brothers. And are not his sisters here with us? He had at least two sisters. I don't know how many there were in the family, but at least seven. And the Catholic Church in particular has wanted to elevate the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never had any other children because she was a virgin for her entire life, and she and Joseph never came together in a normal married relationship. That is false. That may be Catholic doctrine, but that is not Bible. So there are siblings, and I believe that the correct term, they are uterine siblings. They came from the same mother. That's the truth of the Bible. They weren't cousins. They weren't from a previous marriage. I don't believe any of those things is what the Bible is saying. So they are his siblings. They are his brothers. What's more, they didn't believe him. They would have grown up with him. They would have laughed with him, joked with him, wrestled with him. They would have noticed he's different. He never disobeys mom and dad. But they didn't believe he was the Messiah. None of them believed during his lifetime. John 7, 5 tells us that, for even his brothers did not believe in him. But if two of those names sound familiar, James, who became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, Judas, or we know him as Jude, who wrote one of the epistles, they they believed. They believed he appeared to James particularly after the resurrection. So they believed later. His mother isn't even named This is Gospel of Mark. We find out about Mary from Matthew. Tells us a good bit about the birth. Luke tells us even more about the birth of Christ. Just his mother shows up. That's all Mark tells us. And why isn't Joseph there? We don't know for sure, but it seems since Joseph isn't mentioned during his ministry that Joseph has died by this point in Jesus' life. And verse 33, Jesus answers them saying, Who is my mother? Or my brothers. And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and mother. When he says, Who is my mother or my brothers, he's not denouncing his family. He's not turning his back on them. We know, thanks to John chapter 19, he very much cared about his mother and he wanted to make sure she was provided for, even while he was on the cross. So he's not saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with my family anymore. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's distinguishing between his family responsibilities and loyalty and doing the will of his father in heaven. So he's not rejecting family relationships, but he's pointing to a deeper issue. What does he say? Whoever does the will of God they are my family. He's saying that those who belong to his spiritual family are closer to, and the relationships are even more important than his earthly family, his biological family, his natural family. 
So we need to know, how do you become part of God's family? That's good for us to know. John tells us that in the first chapter of his gospel. Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. Well, that's not specifically about his family, but it does apply here, doesn't it? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. How do we become part of Jesus' family? We believe in his name. What does that mean? Not just that I believe Jesus existed, but that I believe that Jesus is the promised one. He is God come in human flesh. He lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life in my place and then died a horrible death on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. He did it in my place, and I believe that he is that Savior. He is that Messiah. Please do not put your hope in people. People will disappoint you. Your family will disappoint you. I will disappoint you guys. If I haven't yet, give me time, I will. Not on purpose, but I will. We are, we are fallen people. We are living in a sinful world. And we should not put all of our hope in any one person or any one group of people. Because our hope is in Jesus. Please don't think that we're just coasting through the Christian life. Because we're not. Satan is out to get us. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, be awake, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We've got to be careful. We've got to be on our guard. And please understand, a lot of people have different ideas about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the unpardonable sin. There's only one sin that will send anyone to hell. It is rejection of Jesus as the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The way we become part of his family his spiritual family is by believing in him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Our Father, we pray that you would clarify for us, correct any false ideas in our heads about your gospel, about your truth, your kingdom. May we understand what it is to be saved, to have salvation by faith, by grace. That yours is the only name that provides that salvation and that through belief in the name of Jesus and what that means as the Savior of the world, by believing in that, we have eternal life and we have a family relationship with you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room or anyone listening or watching online who cannot say that he or she is your child, may today be the day of salvation for that one. Lord, I pray for anybody here who is your child, but who is not living life like we're in spiritual warfare, just trying to coast, just kind of trying to get by. May we be aware that Satan is out to get us. Maybe not him personally, but the evil in the world around us. That there is a battle going on and that you are the winner, you are the victor. But Lord, we need to depend on your strength and we need to do things your way in order to succeed. In order to have spiritual victory. Lord, I pray for anyone who is 
discouraged because of sin. Lord, you have said that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So I pray that you would reassure us of the forgiveness of this truth, the words of Jesus himself, that all sins will be forgiven for those who find salvation in your name. Lord, I pray for anyone who has not found salvation in your name. Lord, if there's anyone who does not know you, may this be the day. If there is someone on our hearts right now who doesn't know you, give us compassion, give us boldness to share the love of Christ with others. Lord, you can see into hearts. You know what the needs are in this room. I pray that we would be obedient to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that we would rejoice in the understanding of his word that you give that you would continue to change us and work on us as we pursue you as your followers, as your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.